wonderful. Thank you. What a great declaration for us this morning. <clears throat> One of the most popular questions I've received from those of you that are here on Sunday since I started preaching was about this Bible. Have y'all noticed how big this thing is? I feel like everybody has. They keep saying, what's that big Bible you're carrying? And so, you know, it could do damage if I really needed it to. It is as big as it looks and it's heavier than it looks. I'm afraid I'm going to get arthritis as I hold it out there. That's why I leave it right here. It's not a family Bible. It doesn't record all the genealogy that it looks like it would because it's um, so big. Somebody said to me, said, um, Wes, I'm just concerned. I look at that Bible there and it looks like it's about to fall off. The pulpit. It has a great center of gravity, so I'm not that concerned about it. I think it's going to stay right here. And Crystal Huggins, she sent me a message and uh, she said, you've been carrying a serious Bible on Sundays. She said, I took it as a great show of, yes, I'm using technology, but I've got a really big Bible, so everybody's happy. So uh, <laughs> I think that's uh, what I'm trying to communicate with this. Truth is, it was a gift from the Pastor Search Committee, and uh, it's in, it is big, it is heavy, and it's called the Preacher's Bible, and there's a lot of reasons why it's good for a preacher to have this one, but uh, I'm sure that you all have Bibles that are meaningful to you. You know, some of you I know probably have deceased family members' Bibles that you hold on to and flip through to read special things maybe they've written down, or you've had Bibles that uh, special people in your life have given to you, maybe the Bible that was used in your wedding. Uh, I know some of you have Bibles that you carried off to war whenever you were serving our, uh, our nation. Um, th there are a lot of reasons to be nostalgic about certain Bibles, but the question is, what do you do with the text, Right? That's what's important. And so today we're going to look at the importance of not the Bible as a book, but the Bible as the Word of God, as containing the message of salvation to the world. So the Bible is, is not um, a book we worship. It is a book that contains truth. That's why we value it. That's why we hold it and are revered in a high place. So it really does become our greatest resource when it comes to proclaiming uh, the gospel and living on mission. In the days of Paul and Silas, of course, the, uh, when they were living on mission, the Old Testament was the scriptures. That's what they had. And they actually used it as a tool to proclaim the gospel. Even though Jesus' name is not mentioned there, that's the tool they use, just like we use the scripture today. So for the last several weeks, we've been in a series called On Mission. We've been watching as Paul... Silas, Timothy, and Luke uh, went on the second missionary journey. Paul and Silas began in Antioch, uh, southern Syria, very close to the Israeli border. Uh, they uh, traveled across Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. They found Timothy. He joined their missionary effort. They had places they wanted to go, people they wanted to talk to, but Jesus called them over to Macedonia. Across the Aegean Sea, they took Luke with them. And they went to Philippi, uh, where they began to proclaim. And we saw the first European con uh, converts in, uh, as we were studying just a couple weeks ago. And today, we're going to pick up where we left off. Acts 17. Uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy. We think Luke stayed in Philippi. But we believe Paul, Silas, and Timothy uh, said goodbye to the church. And they went out traveling once again. So we're going to be in Acts 17. We're actually going to be in verses 1 through uh, 14, but I'll just read to you now, Acts 17, 1 through 9. Now when they had traveled through Amph Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, 
where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The scriptures were central to the mission of these first century missionaries. And as followers of Jesus today, the scriptures should consume our very lives. So how should we view the scriptures? I think from this passage that you'll we'll learn this morning, uh, that it becomes very clear we should treat the scripture as truth, as threat, and also as treasure. So we're going to start uh, with the scripture as truth. Verses 1 through 4 show us how Paul, Silas, and Timothy treated the scriptures as truth. So what happened is they left Philippi, and they would have journeyed down the same road they traveled to Philippi, the Via Ignatia. So this is a great Roman road. You can still see the ruins of it today. They traveled, uh, it, it amounted to about 100 miles, somewhere between 90 and 100 miles. We know they passed through two cities. Uh, they don't really uh, minister there that we can tell from the scriptures. Um, now, I want you to think about this, though. Remember what happened to Paul and Silas before they left Philippi. They had been beaten. They had been imprisoned. And so now they've got to travel 100 miles. And I think in our minds sometimes we just imagine that's, an e that's what people did, and they just traveled. I'm not quite sure if they walked the whole journey. Maybe they... We know there were no bicycles or no caravans or whatever, so they probably found some way so they wouldn't have to walk because of the condition they were in. And they traveled 100 miles, arriving in Thessalonica, which was their ultimate goal. Thessalonica was the second largest city in this area, um, the area known as Greece. Second largest city, had a population of about 200,000 people, and Thessalonica was located in what is now known as Thessaloniki or Salonika. It's still the second largest city in Greece. So it really is a world-class city, which made it a great target for Paul to go and continue his missionary journey. Remember, Paul's goal is to spread the gospel to the world, just like Jesus had commanded the disciples to do. So you're to be my witnesses here and there and even to the uttermost parts of the world. And so that's what they do. They're headed out to carry the gospel. They end up in Thessalonica, and since it is a, a world-class city, then the likelihood of it spreading even further is much greater, right? It's the same principle today. You go to critical cities so that you can reach the world. Uh, the influence is much greater there. You know, we have an incredible opportunity at First Baptist Church even today. 
our worship services are televised uh, to a statewide audience. We consider all those who join us by worship on TV as an extension and a part of our congregation, and we're so glad to have them each week. It's also uh, webcasts on the internet to the world. Um, in fact, last week, or in the last couple weeks, we've had people that have joined us for worship in Mexico, in Poland, in Russia, in France, in the United Kingdom, um, and in Aruba. I don't know if it was somebody on vacation. We also had them in Singapore, so it's a great place. But not only that, but because of the university that's five blocks away, um, we actually are in a global community. We're actually able to reach the nations from right here. Last Sunday, I met a young man from China, and he's back this week. He's studying uh, for his doctorate. So glad to have him here. Um, but, you know, in, at the University of South Carolina, there are, eight, last year, 1,800 international students representing 91 countries. The, greatest, uh, the, the countries with the greatest number of students here, um, China and India. We also know there are students from Saudi Arabia, South Korea, Oman. I'm sure it's the same thing this year. And what is being communicated in our community today has the potential to reach the nations to such a significant degree. It's an incredible opportunity that next year's leaders throughout the globe might be right here. That's why for the last several decades, and we continue to today, we have a ministry to internationals. That's such a critical part of who we are as First Baptist Church here in this community. So Paul and Silas, they got to the city, and we find they continued their strategy. We're going to reach out to um, uh, the Jew first. And so they go and look for a synagogue, and unlike Philippi, they find one. And so they go into the synagogue. I guess Paul teaches a three-part series or something. He's there three weeks in a row. I'm sure he was there much longer, but that's what the scriptures record uh, for the specific time that he's there teaching. And while he's there, he places emphasis on the scripture, which of course was the Old Testament. And Luke gives us four words. I want you to pay attention to these words that describes how Paul witnessed to the Thessalonians. Verse 2 says, And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Reasoned comes from the Greek word uh, dialogomai. Kind of sounds like uh, our word dialogue, right? Um, but that's probably not the best translation of that word. The word uh, reasoned uh, that we use here, it probably means something like to argue or to fight with words or to preach. Now, I read that and I thought, is that what preaching is? Am I arguing with y'all today? I'm not sure. But this is Paul's typical style of teaching. Every time you read the New Testament, this is generally what he's doing, is this idea of reasoning. And it does carry the idea of dialogue. Because in the culture, in the setting, there would be questions. And he would respond to the questions. And so it somewhat was this dialogue there. And then in verse 3, we see that he was explaining and he was giving evidence. And what he was explaining was that the Christ had to suffer and die and rise again. And the meaning behind this word explaining is um, uh, to, uh, to open. It'd be the idea of like whenever you read the scripture, sometimes you read it and you're like, I'm not quite sure I understand what that means. And you're looking for something to illuminate the scriptures here. Well, that's what Paul did. When he explained, it just opened it up for people to understand. And then it says, uh, giving evidence, or some of your uh, versions might say proving. So Paul has said to reason, explain, and now he's proving. This means the questions that they might have in their mind about the Christ having to 
suffer and die and rise again, he was responding to, and he's proving to them from the scriptures this had to happen. Now, you have to remind yourselves here. That's an easy leap for us. But for the Jewish audience he's speaking to, to call the Messiah, to call Jesus the Messiah, it was an oxymoron that the Messiah would be killed. That should have ended his claim to being the Messiah. And so that was what he had to work through, and Paul identified with that thinking. And so he didn't sidestep it. He actually dealt with it head on. He addresses it just straightforward. And then at the end of verse 3 it says, uh, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So Paul also proclaims the truth about Jesus. Eventually the idea of dialogue and explaining and proving has to give way to proclaiming. And that's what he's doing here. After this teaching that is rooted in the scriptures, Luke tells us that some were persuaded. In other words, Paul's truth bore out. They said, I think he's right. They took the next step. They either joined or converted, however we understand that to be. And it says that the Jews believed. It says that some God-fearing Greeks believed. It says that some of the leading women believed. And um, in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul actually refers back to this moment. And he says, some of you were pagans. They were people that worshipped idols. You turned from those worthless idols to the one true God. So there was a cross-section of folks who responded to his message. So Paul and Silas, along with Timothy, are effective with the gospel in uh, in Thessalonica. They have invested their time in teaching the scriptures in the synagogue, and they've rooted it here in the scriptures. So Paul and Silas treated the scripture as authority. The authority of scripture has been a key issue for the Christian church uh, in every era. Every era has had to deal with this. The onslaught of attacks of whether this is valid, whether it's believable, whether it's been changed, whether it's manipulated, or whether it's just total fable. Uh, in In our own age, we see an attack on the scriptures from every angle. That means from inside and from outside, attacking the scriptures and its validity. Um, In in our age where we live, uh, feeling trumps fact. And so people think that this ought to be a living document that kind of adjusts or changes to uh, the whims of society, to what we believe is a high value today. This has got to adapt to that. That's what people say. That's what people believe. But I believe that it is important for you and I to put a line in the sand when it comes to the integrity of God's word. What are we going to believe about it? Are we going to treat the Bible as if it's just wise sayings and maybe uh, one person's perspective of history that's been handed down from one generation to the next that may or may not be accurate? Or are we going to treat the Bible as the inerrant, inspired word of God? In October 1978, Christian leaders gathered in Chicago to respond to this question. And to develop a position that's uh, on biblical inerrancy that's simply known as the Chicago Statement. And the bottom line is that from that, that gathering, we walked away as evangelical Christians saying, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, if the Bible is the Word of God, and if God is a God of truth, then the Bible must be inerrant. Not merely in some of its parts, as some modern theologians are saying, but totally. 
as the church for the most part has said down through the ages of its history. And as Southern Baptists, as members of this church, and as your pastor, I'm telling you today, I believe this is the inerrant, inspired word of God. And that's not just a good statement for us to win an argument with. I think sometimes it's just fuel for us to use. It means that when we read the Bible, we're reading God's word. We are reading truth. When we study it, we're studying truth that's worthy enough for us to build our life on. That's what this book contains. The Bible makes truth claims that are to be our primary resource for understanding and for proclaiming the gospel. Everything that you and I need to know about God, that need to know about who we are and our duty is, what our duty is to him and the way to salvation, it's contained in this book. Isn't that incredible? And if that's true, why does it collect dust on our bookshelves? Sometimes it's easy to read about the Bible or maybe to come to church and hear a lesson about the Bible or that refers to the Bible or a sermon or to even say you believe the Bible to be true and then to never actually engage with the words of this text. That's so easy for us to do. I don't know why we deceive ourselves in that way. But if you're looking for application today, you're saying, what can I walk away with? There is nothing more applicable than reaffirming your commitment to read this book. Eugene Peterson said, eat this book. You just digest it. I know that there are a lot of other competing interests in your life. I know that life is hectic, but surely you can carve out time to spend time with this book. Uh, at least more time this week than you did last week. You don't have to be a martyr and say, well, I'm going to read the whole thing this week. Or I'm going to read an hour every day. Just read more this week than you did last week. That's what a relationship looks like. You just grow and you mature. So choose today to believe it as truth and proclaim it as the word of God. So here's the thing though. Truth is not always comforting, y'all. It is not always comforting. It challenges falsehood. It confronts us to live a different way. So the scriptures are not only truth, but they're a threat. Remember in Philippi, as the gospels proclaim, people feel their back pockets threatened by it. So there's this massive turmoil. Well, the same thing happens in Thessalonica with the religious status quo. In verse 5, we find that the Jews feel threatened by Paul and Silas. Maybe it was a numbers issue. They're like, there are too many people responding to this. Or maybe it had to do with the Gentiles. And they're like, we're losing influence over there. But whatever it was, it just kind of was uncomfortable for them. And so when people feel threatened, it's interesting who they'll align with, isn't it? Did you notice in verse 5 it says, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. So rather than ministering to the wicked people, they hire them. They say, come with us. We're going to start a ruckus here. And that's what they do. Now evidently Paul, Silas, and Timothy, had, when they came to Thessalonica, they found somebody who welcomed them in, and it was this man Jason. Now, we don't know anything else really about Jason. He's referred to one other time in the whole Bible, and we think it's the same Jason. It's in Romans, and Paul just says, Jason sends his greetings. So that's all we know about him. But we know he was a person of peace. He allowed these guys to come into his home. And Paul and Silas must have been pushed into hiding as the turmoil began, because Jason becomes a proxy. <laughs> I'm not any sure he would have wanted to volunteer for that. It says they dragged him out. Threw him in front of the, uh, the, the leaders of the city and they started hurling these, uh, these uh, accusations against him. And the people accused Paul, Silas, and Timothy and the local followers, um, to, they accused them of being a threat to the way of life there. It says in verses 
6 and 7. These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So there are three charges. They accuse them of upsetting the world. Sounds like a little bit of an exaggeration, doesn't it? But we know it to be true, don't we? I mean, the church is the greatest movement the world's ever known. And it really did upset the world. Look at the last 2,000 years, the influence the church has had. So that's what they said. Then they said, Jason welcomed them. I can't believe you would welcome these troublemakers. And then third, which is kind of the coup de grace here. They say the same thing they said about Jesus. You say you're king of the Jews? Because that would have him killed, right? Well, they say that about this man. They're, they say that there is another king, Jesus. The claim that Jesus is king, rooted in these scriptures, is a threat to every other way of life. You know, as the gospel invades the territory of another monarch, there's always going to be an authority struggle. No one can serve two masters. So to take the knee before King Jesus threatened Caesar. And the call for you and I to bow to King Jesus also threatens King Wes and King you and King Mighty Dollar and King Success and King Career, and King Perception, other people's perception, and King Pleasure. The Word of God is a threat. So I know we like to just talk about the encouraging, comforting things about Scripture, the ones we can kind of cross-stitch and hang on the wall, or write in a neat form on a coffee mug, or put on the background of our smartphones. Well, God's Word is encouraging and comfort, but it's not always gentle. In fact, Hebrews 4 12 says for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart have you ever felt the pain of the word of God piercing your heart when I was in college it was my senior year and I was real concerned about what I was going to do with my life. And I just wanted to be faithful to the Lord. And I had just been praying about that, seeking wisdom on that. And I found a handle, a, word, a verse to meditate on, Matthew 6, But seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. And that was a great handle for me because I said, God, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to seek you first. I want to seek your kingdom first. And then one day I was meditating on that verse and I felt the searing pain of that two-edged sword piercing my heart because I realized I had been seeking first all these things that he could add on to me that's what I've been I forgot about him I forgot about his kingdom it was just God what can you do for me it's the difference between getting your arms around God's neck and getting your hands in his pocket I just wanted what he could give me rather than just to know him the word of God should step on your toes it threatens our comfortable living. It bids us to deeper discipleship. And so like Paul and Silas, sometimes we suffer for believing this word. But it's an okay thing because God will always, as we're faithful to his word, he will take care of his own. Ultimately, what happens is Jason offers a pledge to the city. That means he probably pays a bond and then makes a promise that, okay, Paul will leave. Silas will leave or whatever it might be. And um, Paul and Silas leave in a hurry. Now, Paul loved Thessalonica. You read through Thessalonians, you'll see he, he had a, some, a special place in his heart for this city and this church. 
Same thing with uh, Philippi. So he hated to leave in a hurry. But we knew that the scripture is a threat and brings consequences. So those missionaries just keep moving. So I'm going to read to you verses 10 through 12. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So they head into this city, Berea, which is known for being off the beaten path. In other words, it's not along the Via Ignatia. Um, In fact, this is a critical city if you want to carry the gospel westward. So I think it might have been strategic for him being there. And it's kind of like third first, same as the first. He gets there, and what does he do? He seeks out the Jews. And he's going to the synagogue to preach there. He finds them there, and it turns out they're very open to Paul and Silas and their teaching. And uh, they receive the gospel with eagerness. Now, this is not because they're gullible, but it's because they're seeking God. And what might God have to teach us today? And as seekers, they didn't just take it as face value. What did they do? They went and compared it to what they knew to be true. They studied the scriptures. And guess what? They didn't go on the Sabbath. What does it say? Daily examining. So they heard the word. Then daily they would turn to it and say, is this right? Do you think this is true? So the Bereans open the scriptures to consider the claims. They do it daily. And the listeners found the message reasonable to believe. So Jews, Greek men, and women join the movement. Once again, the local church looks like the community. It was a cross-section from the community who responded. Well, the Bereans are remembered today as a people who treasured the scriptures. They allowed the word of God to collect no dust. They didn't wait to hear it proclaimed at worship each week, but they were daily engaging with the word. So we do the same thing. We demonstrate our view of scripture. If we believe it to be treasure, then daily we would engage with it. You know, the Bible continues to be the top uh, best-selling book in the world. And I think we kind of wear that as a badge of honor. Our religious book sells better than yours does. But at the same time, the Bible continues to be the most neglected book in the lives of those who own a copy. The Baker Commentary says, The desire to possess a Bible is not matched by the desire to know its message. The Old Testament tells of uh, the day when uh, Josiah was king of Judah. In the 18th year of his reign... His high priest goes into the temple, and over in a corner, he finds the book of the law. It had been neglected. He brushed it off. It had lost influence among the people. Josiah's servant brings the book of the law to him, reads it to him. And you know what it says? Josiah tears his robes off out of repentance. He can't believe this. And in 2 Kings twenty-two thirteen, 13, the end of the verse, it says, For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book. To do according to all that is written concerning us. Have we done the same thing? Have we neglected the truth of God's word here? The gospel was a threat in Berea as well. Same thing. The Jews of Thessalonica actually come down and stir up the trouble again. So Paul has to leave in a hurry. But you know, the gospel's like wildfire. All of a sudden it goes to Philippi. You try to stamp it out, pops up in Thessalonica. Try to stomp it out there, pops up in Berea. Try to stomp it out there, and it's headed to Athens. And that's what we're going to look at 
next week. Here's the, let me, let me conclude. The scripture is truth. We don't proclaim the gospel based on our experience. We proclaim it as the truth of God's word. The scripture is a threat. You should recognize that this book is a turnoff to other people. It should be contrary to what the world teaches. So we should expect society to shun it and to keep it out. And at the same time, we ought to obey it even when it steps on our toes. Finally, the scripture is treasure. Now, let me say this to you. The last thing I want to do this morning is to hang around you some heavy burden of guilt. Because you walk in here and you feel like, man, I am failing to engage with God's word. And you feel guilt from that. What I want to tell you today is that the God in his grace, he has grace for all of your failures. So you shouldn't walk in here and feel defeated, but love. Because that's your heavenly father's posture towards you. The Bible is his love letter to you. It is not to bring you burden, but it's to bring you life. It has mercy in it. So receive it as that today. In fact, this week as you read it, think about that. God in his love for me has given me this, this wisdom, this insight, this challenge, this correction. The truth is every one of us needs to recommit to demonstrating our value of the Bible by setting time aside for Bible reading, Bible study, and even Bible memorization. And there are great plans to help you do that. But some of you need to make a decision today about joining our church or maybe following in believers' baptism. Some of you may feel that the Lord is opening your heart to respond to God and his a message of salvation. We're going to have an invitation, and I hope if the Lord's working in your heart that you'll respond this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we treasure it as being a message of hope and love even to us. Now, God, help us to live in it, to see it as authority and to live in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to have an invitation. We all respond. What will you do today with what you've heard? If God's speaking to your heart, I'm going to invite you to respond. I'll be waiting down front. I'd love to pray with you or let you walk back if you want to make a decision about joining our church or baptism or salvation. So you stand as our choir sings, you respond.